Today's sermon text comes from Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. All righty, well, good morning, church. Um, If you have your Bibles with you, we'll be in Psalm 112 this morning. Um, But before I got started, I just wanted to take this opportunity to say Thank you to Pastor Adam and Pastor Jake and the elders and the church. Um, It's just been a huge blessing for myself and my family to be a part of a church that has a vision for teaching, equipping, and discipling the body of the church. And we've just been so blessed the last month or so to hear from so many great speakers. And it's one thing to be about training in the word, but it's another about giving us opportunities to grow. And so... Um, I just wanted to express my thankfulness for this uh, opportunity. And um, with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord God, we are thankful for this opportunity, for this morning, that we can come together as one body, as one church to worship you, Lord. That we have the freedom to worship you in, in this community, in this country, Lord. We are thankful for that. We are thankful for your character, Lord. We're thankful for who you are, what you've done, your righteousness, your mercy, your grace. And Lord, we're thankful for your word. The word that you've put before us, that you've preserved throughout history, that you've given it truth to speak into our lives, Lord. And I pray this morning as we open up your word and we study it, Lord, that we would approach it with open hearts, with open minds, Seek out the areas in our lives that, that need to hear and see the truth and, and bring it to the light, Lord. And I just pray that this would be heavy on our hearts as we go forward into our week and into our communities, Lord. Just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, man. So throughout my young adult life, um, I've always been interested in seeing the things that motivate people. I've always had coaches, teachers, mentors, somebody in my life. And it's always been interesting to see and observe the words that they choose to motivate either young kids or grown adults. And sometimes it's just a few simple words, or other times it can be a long, drawn-out speech. Sometimes it's said with a lot of passion and anger, and other times it's simple and straightforward and to the point. But what's always been interesting to me is that the results have always been a mixed bag. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And that's especially true with parenting. 
But for many years, people and organizations have been using mottos, slogans, mission statements to drive their employees or their consumers to a common goal or a vision or something that they thought wasn't possible before. We see this in athletics, corporate America, churches, small businesses, schools, all across the board. So as I was thinking and preparing for today's sermon, I was curious to see the mission statements of some companies that we know here in town. What did their leadership come up with to motivate their employees or their consumers to strive for a common goal or for a certain vision? And so I have a few for you today. And so one that you guys may know, or maybe you don't know, um, the Mayo Clinic's mission statement reads as this. Inspiring hope and promoting health through integrated clinical practice, education, and research. I think that sounds pretty good to me, but I'm just an outsider um, on that one. Or IBM, big employer here in town, to be a catalyst that makes the world work better. Now, we could go through many more throughout the Rochester area and across the US, but the point is that these words have been carefully crafted by their leadership to elicit some type of response. An inspiration in athletics is very common. We see coaches do whatever they can to motivate their teams to strive for greatness, for wins, for championships, and they're gonna go to great lengths to get those words in front of their players. Sometimes it's in a long speech. Sometimes they put it on the back of t-shirts. Locker rooms, doors, everywhere they can find wall space, they're gonna put up some sayings. And so I have a few notable quotes from famous coaches, um, especially for you Vikings fan. This one's from Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers, who said, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. And maybe the Vikings need to remember that one. Or you have people like Nick Saban at Alabama who's had a ton of success and he says, becoming a champion is not an easy process. It's done by focusing on what it takes to get there and not on getting there. And so this was no exception to my own experience. I uh, had the opportunity to go play college football at the University of Wyoming. And uh, at our program, one of the first things that you were told and that you saw was this saying that said, those who stay will be champions. And as you walked into our facility, those words were posted on every door, every team meeting, in our locker room. Um, it was on the door when you walked in, the first door you walked in during the day, and it was on the way out. And they usually did something really cool, like some cool graphics, nice Western font with a picture of somebody scoring a touchdown, and it said, you know, those who stay will be champions. And so... Um, it was all over our facility. But as an incoming freshman who didn't know a ton about college football or football in general, reading those words for the first time, it, it worked. It made me excited. It was a great recruiting tool. But my mind immediately jumped to on-the-field success, what it looked like to score touchdowns, maybe win some games, going to bowl games, celebrating with the fans, that's only where my mind was focused. And really, if I thought about it, those words were just merely words. 
I had no clue what it truly meant to be a champion and what it was going to take and what it was going to involve. So at that point in my career, it was just lip service. There was no heart behind what I was reading and what I was saying. But then as practices began and workouts, I realized that there was a lot of hardship in front of me. But then during those hard days, your passions and your heart for whatever you do get quickly exposed. You start asking yourself questions. Do I really believe that if I stick it out, I put in the work that success or championships or all these fun things that the, the world says are good, will they come? And then at the same time, you see some guys walk away and, and give up. But then there's others that embrace it. And so the difference was that those that did embrace the difficulties, they took that slogan to heart. Now, they didn't walk around the facility reading it every time or saying it over and over and over again, but they built it into their action. It became part of their craft on and off the field. And it wasn't just some saying that was slapped on the wall. They believed it. And at some point in my career, I had to make the same choice. Was I going to believe it and take it to heart? Or is it just going to be words, words on the wall? And as my career came to an end, we did have some success. We uh, won a few games. We went to a bowl game, had some uh, really fun wins. But at the end of the day, we didn't actually win a conference championship. We never beat Alabama for a national title. But when I look back on my experience and reflect on the words, those who stay will be champions, I've come to realize a few things here. By believing in those words wholeheartedly, champion means a whole lot more than what happens just on the field. It taught me discipline. I made great friends. I had great memories. It motivated me. At the end of the day, it shaped me. And at the end of the day, after my career was over I, and I walked off the field, it's, I realized that the results were there, but they were just not in the way that I first expected it when I was an incoming freshman. And so even though the world can offer us these great motivational quotes and mission statements to keep us focused on some worldly vision, they seem to kind of come and go with time. You know, at the end of the day, the world does not offer us truth that we can be anchored to. But praise God that we have his word, and his word can be the motto for our lives. And so the title for today's sermon is, is A Heart for the Word. God's word can be the motto that we need. And in today's psalm, we're going to be given a command, a statement, one that we can either embrace or it can be words on a page. And the phrase that we'll continue to reference, and you've heard it already today, is blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. We're going to have to come to an understanding of what it looks like and what it means to fear the Lord and what it looks like to delight in his commandments. And then the psalm is going to give us what the results look like if we do embrace it and we take it to heart. So just to refresh our memories, let's look at Psalm 112 and let's read again and uh, we'll break it down verse by verse. Praise the Lord, it says. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, 
and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. His heart, he will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. And so before we, we get started, just a few little uh, comments about the context of this psalm. And when we approach the psalms in Hebrew poetry as a whole, it's, and it's important to remember that this is really condensed speech. The author is really trying to pack, about, pack the maximum amount of meaning into a minimum amount of words. The author is going to work very hard just to choose those right words to evoke a certain range of human emotion. Now, even though my wife was an English teacher, poetry was never a strong subject for me. I was never really good at writing or poetry in general. But every time there was a poetry assignment, I always thought to myself, if I just close my eyes, I meditate on some thoughts, think really hard, the words are just going to come out. And that's how good poetry is made. But that didn't really work, and luckily my wife didn't grade any of my poetry. <laughs> but the point is, the psalmist is here is trying to use purposeful words to stimulate our hearts, our minds, our souls, to get us to elicit a response. This command is trying to get us to realize something important. Now, the psalmist isn't identified, but it's generally seen that Psalm 111 and 112 go together. And this, if you have time this week, I would encourage you to go back and read both of them together and meditate on the words that we, we study today. Both Psalm 111 and 112 are acrostic in structure, in, in structure and here's my uh, English lesson for the day. An acrostic structure is a literary device in which the first letter of every verse follows the alphabet. So, for example, the first line would start with the letter A and then B and then C. But in this case, it's referring back to the Hebrew text and the Hebrew alphabet, so don't go looking for our English alphabet there. But the purpose of this structure was to draw focus towards a certain theme, and it also is helpful to memorize. It's important to remember when we approach the Psalms and a lot of the Old Testament that the Hebrew culture and the Old Testament was passed down and spoken and taught orally. A lot by memorizing and speaking and we have to remember there wasn't very many copies like we have today that were being produced. And so um, when scripture was taught, it had to be memorized in order for the next generation to uh, learn it. And so this is why we see Psalms in this type of structure. We can pack the psalm with meaning and then make it easier to memorize. And as we look at this particular psalm, the acrostic structure is going to point us back to verse 1, the statement that we're always going to be reminded of. And also Psalm 112 falls into the category of the collection of the hallelujah psalms. It's generally sought between Psalm 111 and 117. And most of them are reflecting on Israel returning from exile and the deliverance from their suffering that they experienced, the wrath that they faced because of their disobedience. 
And these Psalms, they're praising God for this deliverance, for their suffering was great. So you'll see a lot of praise throughout this, this collection. Psalm 112 is also known as a, a wisdom uh, psalm or in that wisdom genre. We're talking a lot about our moral life, our relationship to God, the importance of living well with God. So it's almost going to sound a little bit like a proverb this morning. And I find it especially important when we approach wisdom literature and especially this psalm today that we are reminded that these are guidelines, but also future promises. And so since Psalm 111 and 112 go so closely together, um, I just got to give you a quick summary of what Psalm 111 says. And so the psalmist in 111 is giving thanks to the Lord with his whole heart because he's seen the works of the Lord and he has taken note that they are great. The psalmist has studied the attributes, the character, the works of the Lord, and he's overcome with thanks for it. In Psalm 111, he recognizes what God is capable of. And it's led to this fear of the Lord. And he closes Psalm 111 with a, that the fear of the Lord has led to wisdom in his life. And so that's where we start this morning, back in verse 1. So verse 1, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. The psalmist starts with immediate praise. Hallelujah, he's saying. It's keying us into what's next. It says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. So in order to be blessed, we just need to fear the Lord. It seems pretty simple, but the more difficult piece to understand is what does it mean to fear the Lord? It's a statement that's always kind of perplexed me, and it seems simple and straightforward. Yet, in my mind, when I try to explain it, it kind of gets a little bit jumbled and a little bit more complicated, but let's simplify the phrase, fear the Lord. So the fear of the Lord, or the phrase fear of the Lord, often occurs many times throughout the Old Testament and 28 times in the Psalms. So it's an important concept for us to know for today, but also as we read other Psalms. And a couple weeks ago, Patrick did a great job describing what fear looks like in our own lives. And I just want to expand kind of what he set before us. So when it comes to fearing the Lord, I think three things go on in our hearts. When we fear something, we first recognize, or we have to recognize, what they're capable of. As we see in Psalm 111, if we go back, the psalmist recognizes all the characteristics and the abilities of the Lord. The psalmist has recognized that the Lord has the power to deliver them out of exile, to defeat their enemies, to provide for them. This psalmist has gained the knowledge base of what the Lord is capable of, and he realizes his power. So we first recognize. The second piece is respect. So it's one thing to just recognize what something is capable of, but we take another step when we show it respect. And what do I mean by respect? I think we have two options when we recognize, recognize the character and the works of the Lord. We can either dismiss his power and his character, not seeing it as true, or we can honor it and we can respect it. And when we respect the Lord by seeing his character and his works, we see it as truth. We see it as something that can and will happen. 
And so we've recognized, we've respected, and now the third piece is a reaction. Recognizing what we read and see, respecting the Lord for who he is, and then what do we do about it? Do we believe in him? Do we submit? Do we obey? What types of change happen in our daily lives? What kind of change happens in our heart? And if we do all three things, it should lead us to worship and obedience. So at the end of the day, the man who is blessed and fears the Lord believes in his heart that Yahweh is the one true God who has authority over all things. And then the man conducts himself differently than he did before. He is filled with praise and worship and he's saturated with the word. Now, this man didn't just come up with this idea or this fear of the Lord out of thin air, but he came to, came to this belief through the reading of his word. And as a result, the word continues to be an anchor in his life. Now, the phrase greatly delights in his commandments shows up many times throughout the Psalms, but especially in Psalm 1, I think it's one that we may know, and it reads, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats, the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the word for delight truly means a pleasure or a desire. And I think in today's culture we have a skewed sense of what it means to delight in something. We have phones, social media, TV, sports even, so many things that give us a glimpse of temporary satisfaction. And we get caught up in these activities, and they're not always bad, but we always find ourselves asking for more. Now, this is not the same type of delight that the psalmist is trying to portray here. I think it's important to remind ourselves that temporary satisfaction is not delight. Greatly delighting in his word brings forth an understanding that not only do we long to desire to read and study God's word, but that we find rest and peace in it. We feel delight in his word when it comes to our mind often and frequently. When we think about what it means to delight in God's word, it essentially has become a part of our everyday life. Our heart should be saying that, that we're in full submission to God and his word, our heart should say that, God, you are enough. Your word is enough. It is enough for all the things that I face. And so just in these first verse, this is what the psalmist is trying to portray. And I think sometimes we get caught up or we forget about the power of God's word and remind ourselves that 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, in righteousness that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. Over the past couple weeks, um, I've had the, the pleasure of listening to a number of lectures and video series from this man named um, Jim Newhauser, and he's the director of the Institute of Biblical Counseling, and um, he's got a wonderful ministry and, and organization. And um, he's one of those guys who just has tons of stories and experiences and wisdom. And every time he gets up to speak, it kind of just oozes out of him. And he's talked about a number of really difficult situations and ones that may, may not seem so difficult. But 
every time he shares a story, um, it's remarkable how every time he returns back to Scripture, every time Scripture is the anchor and the guidance and the wisdom that he looks for and he turns to. And every time he talks about a different situation, every time he's been able to find guidance and wisdom in Scripture. So I've just been really convicted that the Scriptures speak to so many situations that we face in our world. Yet it's something that we hardly turn to or sometimes we don't even bring into the conversation. So I want you want to encourage you that God's word is sufficient. The man in this psalm believes that scripture is sufficient for his life. And so I know we spent quite a bit of time there, but as we look through verses two through nine, it's gonna give us the result of what it looks like when a man fears the Lord and delight in, in, his, uh, in his word. So verse two says, his offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Remember when I said about the wisdom genre, these are guidelines with future promises. These things may happen now, they could happen soon, or they could happen in the future. And by the future, I mean there is a promise that extends beyond our earthly lives. Now, there is wisdom found out throughout the scriptures in regards to wealth and riches, and there's wisdom on how we spend our money and budgeting and all those things. But even though those worldly things come to this man, the most important thing that the psalmist says right here is, his righteousness endures forever. So regardless of what the man received, his righteousness endures forever. This man's character is a reflection of God's righteousness. And it's God's righteousness that will endure forever. I just want to say that one more time. It's the man's character that is a reflection of God's righteousness. And it's God's righteousness that will endure forever. As we continue in verse 4, it says, Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm in the Lord. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted. So we now see the result of the man who fears the Lord and greatly delights in his commandment. And we see that many of these things are good. There is good fruit coming from this man's life. He's gonna stand out among the darkness even, will, even when evil is surrounding him. His actions, the way he treats others, it's gonna be full of grace, mercy, righteousness. There's gonna be good fruit from this man's life. He's constantly lending out, pouring out into others, He's conducting the situations with his, in his life with justice, reason, and wisdom. He's anchored in his belief of God regardless of the news. And as I was thinking, isn't this the opposite of what our culture and society is saying today? I feel like our society has created a sense of anxiety or almost anticipation because of all the, new, new, all the bad news stories that keep coming up each and every day. 
And every time a new story comes up or there's breaking news, the world tells us that we need to stop and rethink what we believe. That's not what this psalm is telling us. The psalm is saying, regardless of the news, good or bad, this doesn't change what this man believes about the Lord. His character is still a reflection of the Lord and his word. Now, as we close and as the psalmist comes to a close, he uh, makes an abrupt contrast. In verse 10, it says, The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. I think it's important to take a moment and remember that a heart that fears the Lord and one that greatly delights in his commandments produces a life that's set apart. It's set apart from the world. Others are going to see it. It's going to make them frustrated. It's going to make them angry. It's going to lead to their own destruction. So just as Justin reminded us back in Psalm 94, the wicked are still against the people of God. And this should open our eyes. This should be a warning sign to us. We should read this. We should even look at our own lives. When we appropriate fear, appropriately fear the Lord and delight in his word, our lives are going to look different to the surrounding world. And those who do put their trust and faith in the Lord will not perish. There's, all, there's more in store for this man in the future. So, as Paul Tripp would, would say, how does this apply to the here and now? How does this apply to our daily lives? First, I think we need to look back at verse 1. We need to evaluate where our hearts are at. Do I fear the Lord? When I hear and read about what the Lord has done, what he's recorded and what he's preserved in the scriptures, that Christ came to this earth, died, and died for my sin and rose again, do I believe that to be true? And if not, I would encourage you to go back and read, read what the Lord has done. And even though that we, have an, we can have an appropriate fear of the Lord and we can believe in Christ, there are days where it's still tough to be in the word. Life gets really busy. We get tired. There are days when our own thoughts, our own uh, ways about doing things get in our way. And so instead of turning to the word, we just do what we think is best. So we can look at our own lives and ask ourselves some questions. Are the items in verses two through nine evident in my life? Are we being generous? Are we being gracious and merciful? Are we anxious for bad news? I think it's important to remember that our outward actions are a reflection of our inward hearts. Our outward actions are a reflection of our inward hearts. The Bible reminds us, reminds us of this many times, but one that is my favorite and is clear to me is Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. So if we let our sinful hearts be our desire, we're destined for spiritual laziness. If we let our spiritual heart, if we let our sinful hearts be our desire, we're destined for spiritual laziness. But at the end of the day, it's easy for, for me to get up here and say, you know what, we just need to look introspectively and analyze our hearts. And you know what, some of us are, are good at that. Sometimes we can recognize when um, we're not 
in the word as we should be, or we're tired and um, you know what, I'd rather just be on my phone or do something um, that's more monotonous. Sometimes we can recognize that we really should be in the word. But how do we change? How do we begin to view God's word in the same way as this man? And I think the answer is simple and it's clear in this psalm as well. We look to Christ. Christ is the man in this psalm. Christ is the ultimate example. And if we would read through this again, and we don't need to, but Christ is the one who died for our wickedness in verse 10 so that we could become and participate in the blessings in verses two through nine. And now more than ever, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel. Remind ourselves that we are wretched sinners that deserve death but that Christ came to this earth and died for us so that we could live a life of righteousness. So when we're tempted to not be in the word or we're doing other things that maybe are not in accordance to the word, remind ourselves of the gospel. It's the gospel that is going to change our hearts that's ultimately going to lead to obedience. Let, the, let Christ and the power of the gospel pierce our hearts and transform our minds about him and his word, and good things will come. And so, just as the saying, those who stay will be champions, motivated my team, and did a great job of, of pulling a program, and we had some success, I want to leave you with this today. Let the word of God be our motivation to become the righteousness of God. Let the word of God be our motivation to become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we are, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the truth that it provides. We're thankful for the gospel, the saving grace that you entered into time and went to the cross for, for the penalty of our sin, Lord, and that we can believe in that. And that can transform our hearts. It can transform our minds. And it can produce a life that is full of righteousness, and that there is future promise in that. Lord God, I just pray that we would take this word, that it would search our hearts, search our hearts this week, and I pray that we can go out into our community, into our workplaces, into our schools, into our homes, and be a light for others. That we can be a light among all the darkness, Lord. And I pray that the word would shine ever greatly uh, in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.